Pray with me, please. Father, we thank you that you have promised every spiritual blessing in Christ. We call upon you to fulfill those promises now today because of your grace and by your spirit through your word that you would grow your kingdom, bless your people, and glorify your name. We ask this because of Jesus. Amen. He had always wanted to have children of his own for as long as he could remember. He had prayed for them often and fervently. And though he felt the sting of the longing unfulfilled, a loss, really, of never being able to have children. It was the love for his wife and the pain that she felt that made it nearly unbearable for him. How many nights had he heard her weeping, begging God through tears for a child? It made it all the harder because in that culture and context, being childless was not only sad, but from some people, Shameful. And yet, the years advanced. And they grew old enough to where they could not even have children. And so on the day when Zechariah entered the temple to burn incense as a priest before the altar of God, and the angel appeared before him and said to him, Your wife will give birth to a son. It was just too much for him. It was too much. He could not bring himself to really believe it. And so he asked, how can this be? At which I, I always imagine that the angel grows larger and gets taller and brighter and there's flames about him and he says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God himself. And he has sent me to declare this good news to you. Zechariah, it's good news and you won't believe it. And because you doubt God's promise, you will be mute, unable to speak until this is fulfilled. And make no mistake, it will be fulfilled. And in a flash of fury, he disappears from his sight. I think if we are being sober-minded and humble and honest we'd all have to admit at times we are much like Zechariah. And we find it hard to believe. We find it difficult to take God at his word. We struggle to hold fast to the hope set before us. We need reassurance and reminders. We need further and ever-deepening convincing because we struggle and worry, we sin. Satan tempts us to doubt this world is ill-suited for faith in the unseen God and His written Word. And our sinful flesh makes it all the more difficult to live by faith. So when the answers to our prayers are long delayed, or when they come, but not as we have asked, not as we expect, when temptations seem overwhelming, and we're struggling with the same sins again and again. When we experience trial after trial after trial and we feel beat down and overwhelmed. When some of the most important relationships in our lives start to shake and crumble. Perhaps they're even lost due to sin or death. 
when our efforts of seeking the Lord seem to be met only with silence, and we feel cold and dull in our heart toward God, and He feels distant from us, when following Jesus makes life harder, not easier, And when the messages of the world around us and the longings of our flesh within us and the experiences in this life all seem to contradict what God says in this book, when any or all of this comes, that's when we feel just how difficult it is to trust God and to hold fast to our hope. That's when we need convincing. That's when we need to hear afresh that the promises of God are confirmed and guaranteed and secured. That's what our text is about this morning. So if you would, please grab your Bibles and stand with me in honor of the reading of the Word of God this morning from Hebrews chapter 6. We're going to be reading verses 13 through 20. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13, we begin. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that, by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. The first thing I want you to notice about this passage is what he does not say. The author of Hebrews does not seek to explain why it is that we have a hard, such a hard time trusting God and hoping in Him. He doesn't even seek to make a defense for that it is so. He simply assumes that this is the case. He, he knows that his readers, which includes us, that we know too, that we know all too well that we do struggle to take God at His word and to hold fast to our hope. And so, taking it for granted... He seeks to convince us. He seeks to convince us of our hope in order to, to stabilize us and to strengthen us, to take God at his word and to hold fast to the hope set before us. But notice further how he does not seek to convince us. He does not give us proofs of the existence of God or of the reliability of the biblical manuscripts. Now, we, we have these and they're wonderful. Well, that's not what he does here. Nor does he seek to give us a, a very clear and detail, detailed description of our glorious hope, showing us all the facets and colors of it, though we have that in other parts of Scripture, and it's beautiful. That's just not what he does here. Instead here, like a skilled lawyer, he invites us into the courtroom so that he can argue his case before us. And he gives his threefold argument of historical, theological, and Christological reasons why we should be convinced of the hopes that before us. The, the, the little twist, however, is that while he's trying to convince us, in this courtroom, you are not the judge. You are not the jury. 
You have no authority to decide the verdict. Instead, you are the guilty defendant. And you pretty much know what the verdict is going to be. You're just awaiting the sentence. And as you sit there waiting, you hear, innocent on all charges. More than that, you have been named citizen of the year. You get the keys to the city, nay, the world. And your sentence is life. Abundant life. Your reward is eternal life, blessings forevermore, fullness of joy with God without end. And at this, you cannot believe your ears, and so you shoot up out of your seat and you cry, Objection! Something's going on here. Somebody's playing some kind of mean trick. Like, like there's some catch here. I, I don't, I, I cannot believe this. I mean, I know that I'm guilty. The world's still going to treat me like I'm guilty. Like I don't deserve anything good. I don't feel innocent. I don't feel free. I don't feel secure and even blessed often. After all, I'm still wearing my prison uniform this orange jumpsuit, and I still have my handcuffs on. All my personal effects are still back at the jail. No, no just none of this makes any sense. At this point, the author of Hebrews stands up. He gently puts his hands on your shoulders, looks you in the eye, and says, My friend, it's all true. It may seem too wonderful. It may seem nearly Impossible to believe, but it's all true. Remember what the judge said. And he goes through, and he's, he, he's giving you the, the arguments, his threefold argument. And he's telling you of the historical and theological and Christological reasons why you should be convinced. And seeking to convince you, he does. To convince you why the judge's decision is true, and confirmed, and guaranteed, and secure, and therefore why you should fully receive it. And gladly so. He's seeking to tell you that we have every reason to be fully convinced of the glorious hope set before us. Every reason. That's what this passage is about. And so let's go into verses 13 through 15 where we see the historical reasons to be convinced of hope. He starts off saying that God made a promise to Abraham. He swore by it and said that surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus, he said, Abraham, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. This is the first of the historical reasons why we should be convinced of hope is that God not only makes promises, but he keeps them. We have a, a whole history, thousands of years, over millions of people, God doing this very thing. God makes his promises and he keeps them. Just like he did with Abraham. What's the promise he made to Abraham? Well, you see, Abraham and Sarah, much like Zechariah and Elizabeth, were old and were barren. They had no children, though they longed for them. And God said to Abram, what's his name, which means great father, though he had no children, you will be named Abraham, the father of many nations or the father of a multitude. He says, but I have no child. Well, I will give you a child, and from you will come many generations, and from you will be the blessing of the world. And they had a hard time receiving this too. Sarah, when she heard it, she actually laughed. 
which is why they named their son Isaac, which means laughter, or the one who laughs. But that's not actually the specific promise being spoken of here in this verse. Because he promises in Genesis 12 that he would have a child and have a great nation from him. And then he reaffirms it in Genesis 15 and in Genesis 17. But the only time he enjoins this promise with an oath where he swears by himself is in Genesis 22 after Isaac is born. The son of promise has come and they're laughing with joy that he has been given to them. And it's been several years. Isaac is old enough, strong enough to be able to carry wood up a mountain for the sacrifice, not knowing that he was the intended sacrifice. God was testing Abraham to see whether he would really still, with faith and patience, be willing to receive the inherited promise. Do you trust me, he says. You take me at my word. Are you holding fast to the hope I have set before you? If so, slay your own son, the son of promise, the one through whom you'll have a, a great nation after you. Abraham, Hebrews says, believed that God could even raise the dead. And so he raised the knife, and if you know the story, God said, don't do it. He provided a ram instead, spared his son, but he knew that Abraham trusted him, and Abraham knew it too. And so then God says, because you have not withheld your own son, surely I will bless you and multiply you, I swear by myself. This is the, 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 the example for us. We see in verses 11 and 12 of Hebrews chapter 6 that, that we ought to, he's exhorting us, to hold fast to our hope until the end and to do so with earnestness, not sluggishly, but be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. He says, let me give you an example of someone you should imitate. Here's Abraham. Having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. Now, let me be clear. Having patiently waited, he obtained the promise means that in response to Abraham's faith and patience, God fulfilled his promise. But it wasn't ultimately a meriting clause. That is, Abraham didn't earn God's blessing. He wasn't deserving of God's great blessing here. It was just in response to it, God mercifully, graciously kept his promise to him in response to his faith just as he said he would. And we ought to follow this example and have patience and faith and hold fast to the hope until the end. But if you notice, it says he obtained the promise. But the promise wasn't just for Isaac. It wasn't just for Isaac's son, Jacob, or Jacob's sons, the 12 tribes of Israel, the leaders of those. And in fact, it says that Abraham obtained the promise in the sense that the promise was not just to Abraham. It wasn't just to Isaac or Jacob. It wasn't just to Israel. It was through Abraham even to us. We can see this in Galatians chapter 3, verses 6 through 9. Speaking of Abraham, as it says, Just as Abraham believed God, it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Not just the physical descent of Jewish lineage. No, it's those of faith. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, those non-Jews, by faith, 
the scripture, it says. God, through his word, preached the gospel. This is the gospel about Jesus Christ, the gospel that we proclaim every week. This gospel was preached beforehand to Abraham. And indeed, we could say through Abraham, because he says, saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. So then, those who are of faith, that's us who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. The promise was not just to Abraham, but also through him to all who believe, because he has set the hope before us, Hebrews says. Verse 18, you need to hold fast to the hope set before you. That's an interesting way to put it, because he, say, he doesn't say, you just hold fast to whatever you're hoping in, whatever you're hoping for, just hold fast to it. He says, the hope that has been set for you, the hope that I have established. This is the objective hope. It's the objective reality, as Pastor Nathan said last week. It's not the subjective kind of, I'm hoping, but no, it's the objective what we're hoping for. It's the inheritance. It's the thing that we want, that we're going to get. Which, I think, leads us to ask this question. What are you hoping for? What are you really hoping for? Are you setting your hopes? Or are you relying on God to establish what you should be hoping for? Do you hope for an easy life? As much as possible, comfort and pleasure and security in your circumstances? Do you hope for a life of happiness and fulfillment in temporal things, like a good job and someone to love, a happy family and healthy family, a few adventures here and there, a comfortable retirement, a long life only to end in death without hope? Is that, is that what you want? The inheritance spoken of in verse 12 that God has set for his people is infinitely better than anything that we could ever come up with. And so when I say that we should be convinced of the hope set before us, I'm not only saying that we should be confident about it, but that we should long for it. Both because of its infinitely greater quality, more than anything we could ever hope for, come up with on our own, but also because unlike just about any other thing we could hope for, it is secure. It is firm. Or as Peter puts it in 1 Peter 1, 4, that this inheritance that we've been born again to is imperishable. It's undefiled and it's unfading. It's imperishable that it cannot be broken or lost or stolen. It's undefiled and that cannot be corrupted or twisted. It's unfading in that it cannot be diminished. The luster, the glory, the power, the wonder of it can never fade, never be lost. This hope is the hope that God's purposes in all of life are for our good. That God is for us and it will lead in this life ultimately to the fullness of joy in the glory of God's presence forevermore. That's the hope that Hebrews is talking about here. That's the hope that I, and I believe that God, wants to convince you of this morning. This is the hope of which I say we have every reason to be fully convinced of the glorious hope set before us. And perhaps you say, yes, yes, that is my hope, and I, I want that forever to be what I'm hoping for. But on what basis? What are you basing your hope on? Is your hope that God is for you? and that he will always do everything for your good, and that he will lead you ultimately one day into the fullness of joy in his presence forevermore? 
is your basis for hoping in that something substantial or something weak? Is it based upon your unstable circumstances? As long as things are, are going your way, your hope feels very secure. Like, you, you feel really confident in this great hope that God is for you will always be so to the end and throughout eternity until you lock your keys in the car when you're already letting, running late. Or when you get sick and you're sick and tired of being sick and tired. Or when you lose someone very dear to you. Or when sin seems to be having your number and just overwhelming you. Or when you're in a spiritual drought and you feel like your prayers are hitting a ceiling and you're trying to seek God but you find nothing. Then does your hope waver? Is it shaky then? Is your hope based upon your ability to work things out? I got this. I'm good. So therefore my hope is good. Or, or maybe it's just when you're, uh, you have the ability to see how God could per- possibly work it out. Oh, I see what God could do. I, I, but what if when you, you can't see it? Is your hope based on something as ever-changing and unstable as your emotions? Or is it based on something far more substantial, like not only the historical evidence, but theological reasons to be convinced of hope? We find in verses 16 through 18. Verse 16 says, For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. The first of the theological reasons to be convinced of hope is that no one is greater than God. People swear by something greater than themselves, but we already read in verse 13, God swore by himself because he had no one greater by whom to swear. There's no one greater than God, and yet... And yet, we struggle to believe that. Our thoughts, our fears, our emotions, this world, the devil himself, our experiences, and our short-sighted vision of the future all dispute this reality that God is the greatest being in the universe. Verse 16 says, And in all their disputes, like in all their arguments with, with what has been claimed and stated and promised, That's what we do. We argue with the God of the universe, not just Gabriel, his messenger, but God himself. And we say, I'm not so sure. I I, I got a question. We lack confidence, conviction. And God is so merciful. He's so gracious. And he says, I have a very gracious purpose for you, for your good. It's an everlasting purpose. It's unchangeable. And yet, I don't just have a purpose and I don't tell you about it. I tell you and I promise it to you. Over and over and over again. And I'll go one more. I'll confirm my promise with an oath. I won't just say it. I'll swear it will be done. The words for oath and disputes and confirmation in verse 16 are all legal terms. The writer of Hebrews is taking us into this courtroom and he's saying God is legally binding himself to keep his word. 
He says the oath is final for confirmation. It's to put an end, to terminate all disputes, all questions. No more worrying. God puts an oath. But God swears not by something greater than himself, because there is nothing greater than himself, so he swears by himself. That is, he swears on his own trustworthiness, his own power, his own authority, his own trustworthiness. Well, now this is really only as good as God is trustworthy. So is he? The second theological reason to be convinced of hope is that God is unchangeable. Now hear me, I didn't say God is unchanging, like he just doesn't change. I'm saying God is unchangeable. He cannot change because he's perfect, absolutely perfect. So he cannot I- improve for the better or, or get worse because that would imply some imperfection in the first place. God is perfect and he cannot change. He is simply all that he is all of the time and he cannot be otherwise. This implies that God's word is also unchangeable. So he does not and cannot lie. The text says, it is in verse 18, it is impossible for God to lie. He says, based on two unchangeable things, that is the promise of God, and then he confirms that promise with an oath. The promise and the oath, we know for certain that it is impossible for God to lie. He doesn't want to lie. He doesn't need to lie. He cannot. He cannot lie. Balaam, who was no real faithful servant of God or God's people, he said, you got to understand, God's not like us. In Numbers 23, 19, he says, God is not a man that he should lie, or the son of man that he should change his mind. If God said something, don't you think he'll keep it? He'll do it? He's promised he will fulfill it. God's not like us. He's unchangeable, and he cannot lie. His purposes and his promises are as good as done. They're unalterable, unchangeable. We can count on them. And this should put an end to all disputing, all questioning, all worrying. But alas, it doesn't. So God made a promise. He confirmed that promise with an oath. And in doing so, he guaranteed his purpose with that oath. We see in verse 17 that this unchangeable character of the, prom- of the purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. He guaranteed his purpose to be good, gracious to his people. He guaranteed it with his oath. That word guaranteed is another legal term. It's used when you have have somebody in a courtroom saying, I promise that if it goes south, I'll pay for it. And somebody else comes in and says, listen, I'll vouch for them. I'll be the guarantee between you and that person. It's like a mediator. And so you see what God's doing here. He's not only swearing by himself so that he swears on his own trustworthiness. He's swearing by himself so that he swears to his own hurt. That if I fail to keep my word, God says, I will take the penalty, the consequences for lying. And what are the consequences for lying? Revelation 21.8 says, liars go to hell. God says, I'll take that. So sure am I that I will not and cannot lie. I'll keep my word. I have promised and I have confirmed it and I have guaranteed it with an oath. He's pledging himself as surety. And this is why I say that we have every reason to be fully convinced of the glorious hope set before us. Because God has promised. He has confirmed it. And then he guaranteed his purpose with an oath. 
which takes us to the last main argument he gives, the Christological reasons to be convinced of hope. Jesus becomes the one who is the guarantee. We see in verse 20, Jesus, the Christ, has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is the guaranteeing one. He guarantees God's promise and God's oath. He is the same word, mediator of God's covenant. His covenant, commitment, his promises to his people. Now, we're in the middle of a section here in Hebrews that, that began in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, right at the end of chapter 4, 414. We took a little break, a hiatus here. There's an interlude in chapter 5, verse 11 through chapter 6, verse 12, where he says, listen, I got to tell you very important things about this guarantee, this, this one who is the mediator of my covenant, the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. But it's hard to understand because you're so immature. So let me just tell you, buckle up, it's coming. And then in our passage today, he gives a running start into this doctrine, this teaching about Jesus as the high priest, is the one who guarantees this promise and is the mediator of this covenant, which he will begin in chapter 4, verse 14. He'll continue in chapter 7, all of chapter 7, all of chapter 8, all of chapter 9, and half of chapter 10. It's the very heart of the book of Hebrews. Jesus is the one who guarantees God's promises. He's the mediator of the covenant of God for his people. And he has secured it. But he secured it forever, because you note, he is a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Because he has entered into the very throne room of God wherein our hope lies. Notice in verse 19 it says that this hope enters into the inner place behind the curtain. That curtain was the curtain in the temple. Not, not, not just the curtain from the outer place of the priest, the courtyard there, but into the holy place. But this is the the, the, the curtain between that holy place and the most holy place, or the inner place, as it says. This was said to be the place where God dwelt. The presence of God. This symbolizes heaven itself, where God is, which is, I think, instructive for us. If our hope is in the presence of God, it tells us that our, what we're hoping for is not just getting something from God, it is God. We are hoping to be in the presence of God where there is fullness of joy forevermore, where we are His people and He is our God. We enjoy Him in all of His glory forever and ever and ever. This is our hope. This is what we're hoping for. And Jesus has secured it because He has first entered into this presence. In 1 Peter 1.4, we read earlier, Peter says that our inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading is kept in heaven for you. And in Hebrews 4.14, where this whole section started, it says that Jesus passed through the heavens. And as chapter 1 says, he's sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. He is in the presence of God the Father. And as such, it says here that he's a forerunner. I love that word. It simply means that one who runs before. Well, you can't have someone who runs before unless you have someone who runs after. Like, I don't normally introduce Lindsay as, well, this is my first wife. I, I intend for her to be my one and only, right? Well, if there's going to be a first runner, a one, one who goes first, there has to be the one who comes after. And Jesus says, all who are trusting in me 
I was the one who ran before into the presence of God, and I will bring them after. Doesn't he say that in John? Where I'm going, you cannot yet follow, but later, you will. He's taking us to our hope, just as he brings it to us. And he has secured this absolutely forever. Forever. And therefore, we have every reason to be fully convinced of the glorious hope set before us. And being convinced is what God wants for us. I can say that with confidence because of verse 17. So when God desired, He wants this, He desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, thus us who believe in Jesus. The unchangeable character of His purpose, He guaranteed it with an oath. Why did God guarantee His good purpose for His people with an oath? Because He desired to convince them of it. He said, I I don't just want to do it. I don't even want to just tell you about it. I want to convince you of it. God, our God, beloved, wants to convince you of hope that you will be stable and strong, firm to the end. Our promised, our confirmed, our guaranteed hope is so secure that it acts as an anchor for our souls. Look at verse 19. He says, we have this. We have our hope that's set before us. We have this hope as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. What do anchors do? They hold you steady, firm, so you do not drift. The anchor that is Jesus, he keeps us stable and steadfast even when the strongest winds of doubt and the heaviest rains of sorrow and the biggest waves of temptation and the fiercest storms of trouble come down heavy upon us. Still then, we will not go adrift. He will keep us close. We won't, we won't go drift far from God. He will keep us close to Him, ties us, tethers us to Him like an anchor to a ship. Imagine you go out sailing on a big ship. It has no motor. You're out sailing, and you're sailing around the coast, and you're making sure to stay as close to shoreline as possible. And you know why, right? Because if you go out in the middle of the ocean, you can't drop your anchor and think it's going to do anything. The average depth of the ocean in the middle is over 12,000 feet. That's over two miles. Nobody has a chain long enough where that anchor will hold. You've got to stay close so that you will not drift away. You stay close and you drop your anchor and it holds. And you go to bed that night on your ship. And as night comes, so does the storm. And you're down under the deck in the belly of this beast and you hear the rain you hear the wind and the waves and the lightning and thunder. You, it, and you just have one question over and over in your mind. Will the anchor hold? Will we be tossed way out, never to be able to return? Or will the anchor hold? And the writer of the book of Hebrews comes to you. He puts his hands on his sho- your shoulders and he says to you, Christ is our sure and steady anchor. And because he is the high priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek, he shall never be removed. So neither shall you be. Beloved, though all hell should endeavor to shake, he will never, never, never forsake. This is his promise. And we have every reason to be fully convinced of it. 
And the more you are convinced of this, you will not only be stable, you will be strong. As verse 18 says. So that, you see, God has promised and he's confirmed that promise. He has purposed and he has guaranteed that purpose with an oath. So that by the two unchangeable things, his promise and his oath, in which it is absolutely impossible for God to lie. He did this so that we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. He has promised and he has swore to us so that we might have strong encouragement. That is, that he might have an encouragement that makes us strong so we can hold fast, hold tightly to the anchor. He seeks to encourage, to strengthen, to move, and to compel us to hold fast to this anchor because we know, we know that nothing else can hold us. In this storm-tossed world, we don't throw our anchor down or out or in. We throw it up. Heaven is the only place to make it secure. It's in the very presence of God. Focusing on the promised, confirmed guaranteed, secured, unchangeable nature of our hope in Christ will help you to be stable and strong, holding fast to Christ our anchor, no matter what. Because of what God has said in His promises and done in keeping His promises, because of who God is and what God does, and that He is unchangeable and does not, cannot lie, and because of who Christ is, the high priest, the Son of God, the Savior of sinners. Because of what He has done in His life, His death, His burial, resurrection, His ascension, and now reigning on high, interceding for His people, and what He is doing, all of that, because of this. Beloved, we have every reason, every reason to be fully convinced of the glorious hope set before us. The purpose of God this gracious purpose of God to save us to the uttermost. The beautiful and precious, very great promise of our future inheritance. The hope of glory with God has been purchased in full. It has been guaranteed and secured by Christ. And it is only received by grace through faith, through a steadfast hope in Him and in Him alone. Which leads me that I have to ask this question. Are you among those who have fled to Jesus for refuge? Because that's what the text says. That this hope is set before those, and this great encouragement is for those, and this anchor of the soul is for those who have fled for refuge. Are you fleeing for refuge to Jesus Christ. I don't know all that's going on in your life. I don't know all your struggles. I don't know how deep your sorrows. I don't know how heavy your pain is or how hopeless you feel right now. But I can guarantee you this. Without Christ, you have no reason to hope. But in Christ, you have every reason to be fully convinced of this glorious hope. We need refuge. 
not just from the fury of the storms of life, but also and more so from the fury of the wrath of God for our sins. And the only safe refuge that God has given is His Son, Jesus Christ. Because of who He is and what He has done in the place of sinners. It is only by trusting in Jesus that we can be safe, that we can be saved from the just wrath of God. And that's because Jesus took upon himself the fullness of justice, the fullness of the storm of God's punishment for the sins of everyone who will turn to trust in him. No matter what you, where you're at or what you have done, he says, you can bank on this. This is something you can hope in. And it may just be the only thing. The unbreakable promise of God, the unalterable oath of God, the unchangeable character and purpose of God, all of these have finally and most fully been manifested. We have seen them. It's been revealed in the unchangeable Son of God. Or as the writer of the book of Hebrews says, the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's Jesus Christ. And so if you are not yet fleeing for refuge to Jesus, there's no wonder you have no anchor for your soul. Because he's it. If you are not yet fleeing for refuge in Jesus, then do it now. Come to him simply by faith. Trusting and who he is and what he has done. And if you want to know more about that, please come and talk to me. Email us at prcpastors at pineyridgechurch.org. Put it on a connection card. But seek to be convinced and to keep your hope firmly fixed on him. And if that's where you're at this morning, you're not yet there, then this communion meal is not yet for you. It can be. But not yet, right? You're not there. But if you are, if you are trusting in Jesus, you have fled for him and you know that he is your hope and the anchor of your soul, then in just a moment you can exit to your left and come up to the front to one of these tables and grab these communion elements, this bread and this juice with the gluten-free being to your far left. These elements that represent the body of Jesus, the blood of Jesus given over so that he would take our punishment so that we, he could be our refuge. Go back to your seat and take it with faith, asking God to convince you ever more fully that he is the only anchor for your soul, both now and forever. Ask him to make you strong that you would hold fast to him and do so with joy. For those who are ready and who should come, whenever you are ready, please do.